Good morning. Well, we are in Galatians, and in that third chapter, we're having the opportunity to see the tremendous plan of salvation unfolding before our very eyes. I'd like you to find your way there. Last week, we were looking very carefully at the way in which Paul is making his arguments against those that would say that you and I are saved by grace plus works. And he's refuting that argument by argument and using one example after another. And as we noticed last week, what we saw was that God had delivered by grace promises to Abraham. And we could reduce those promises to the phrase, I will. That promise was irrevocable. That promise was unconditional. It's not based upon works, based upon grace. Subsequent to Abraham was a man by the name of Moses, and God delivered the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots to him. We've got to bear in mind that the I wills preceded the thou shalt nots, not vice versa. And so his argument, Paul, is, is that you and I are saved, even historically, the argument is we're saved by grace, not by works. But now some of his opponents, still nipping at his heels, are saying, well then, Paul, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of God's law? And Paul is saying, well, I'm glad you asked. And so I'd like, to begin, I'd like to begin telling you a little more about God's purpose, which is he, what he does now, beginning with that, with that 23rd verse here. And you and I will be noticing it as it, he takes us down through the 29th. And here, Paul in his writings shares these thoughts. That before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Notice it doesn't say Moses' seed. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're going to be looking at these verses and trying to understand practically how it relates to everyday life. We'll start by looking to God in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. On mornings like these, Father, in the midst of the January days of everyday living, we know that people are gathering together. Some are looking for a straw of hope. 
something to get them through the week. A truth that they can hang on to. Some practical application that they can work with. Thank you that they have come to worship you, Father, because you are the God who takes these truths and applies them practically to everyday life. When we work verse by verse through your word, we're not going to play favorites then with our topics that are of highest interest, but rather we deal with the topics that you have established verse by verse. We embrace those and allow those to be the one that guide and shape our thinking and our worship. So I want to pray, Father, for that heart today and take the topic that's in these verses and give them some hope, give them some assurance, give them some strength to be able to face the tomorrows coming their way. Father, I want to thank you as well for anybody in these services that comes who is spiritually curious, hungry for truth, but has not yet put faith and trust in Christ. Intellectually honest, aware, Father, that they've got questions, and maybe one by one those questions are getting answered in your word, but still there's lingering questions. We're praying that the Holy Spirit now will address those needs, calm those issues, and bring truth to that, to that mindset, Father, and that wants to find truth and answers in you. Father, each and every one of us needs, by faith, to be able to apply truth to life. So what we're asking is, with scriptures now open, that you warm these hearts. That you engage these minds. That you shape these wills. Because, Father, we've come here again now to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Stuart Holden was writing an account of a young Chinese man he was traveling with. The Chinese student was heading to America from China. He was going to be studying at one of the universities, and he was prepping his heart because he wanted to be deeply involved in university. He was engaged in some conversation with the other passenger on the other side of him when the other passenger looked down at what the student was reading. It's a Chinese Bible he began to ask him about. A Chinese student told him that he was tracking the various promises of God throughout the Old Testament that pointed toward Christ. Well, the other passenger began to laugh and then simply said, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to go any further. I just don't want to disturb your faith in Jesus, he said, somewhat cynically. Classic reply, response from the Chinese student. I said, if you could, if you could disturb my faith in Christ, he would not be a big enough savior for me.
One of the beautiful things when you work through the promises of God from Genesis 3 onward, where God promised that there was going to be this seed that would crush the head of the serpent, onward through Abraham all the way to Jesus, is that you are left with such a sea of tranquility, such a calm assurance of faith, you and I are able to look at the tomorrows of our lives. And there's this sense of an undisturbed peace rooted in the certainties of the risen Savior. You've got a big Jesus. It's those that don't know Christ that live with internal disturbance day in and day out. I want to talk this morning about that undisturbed faith. Because five times now, five times that you and I will find in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, down through verse 29, Paul speaks of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to collect our thoughts together with these verses and to look very carefully at two stages of faith that are found here in these verses that I think can help us to better appreciate what God has done by sending Jesus Christ into this world. The first stage is found in verse 23 down through verse 24, and we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, before faith came, we were under God's law. And you say, well, Gary, where do you get this idea? Look very carefully at the beginning of verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now, notice with me this phrase, before this faith came. Question, what is Paul talking about? Answer, He is talking about the faith in the incarnate Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. So in other words, he is now looking at the people and saying, before Christ entered into Bethlehem and went to Calvary, before faith came, in other words, you and I, we, were under God's law. Now, look carefully with me, because there are going to be two significant distinctives about this law that you and I find ourselves under prior to saving faith in Christ Jesus. The first is this, that the law held us captive. Look carefully at the way it phrases itself in 23. Before this faith came, a word used to describe Christ's entrance into this world, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Take that word prisoner and draw a line back up to verse 22, where we noticed last time, but the scriptures declare that the whole world is is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, this Greek word here for prisoner is used to describe someone who is confined, guarded. 
There is sentry duty, operative at this point. Somebody is in personal custody. It was also used, as we noticed last time, to describe that scene in Luke 5, verse 6, where Peter, having cast his nets out into the water, brought in all these fish, and the fish were enclosed as the nets were drawn. Now what God is saying here is before we've put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, is revealed in the law as such that we are enclosed, ensnared. Or moving away from the fisherman's terminology back to the military terminology, it's as if the law served as a sentry guard continuously patrolling as we await our freedom from our captivity. Now, what God would say to you and to say to me is that when you are moving somebody toward the cross of Jesus Christ, where he sets the captive free, make absolutely certain then that they realize that prior to that freedom, they were held in captivity. We were held in bondage. If we go too quickly to the cross and do not recognize that the law itself speaks of the penalty and the power of sin, the person's going to have an understanding simply of cheap grace. That God will deliver me maybe from my tough financial situations. Maybe deliver me from my difficult job situation. But until we teach the goodness of God's law and the value and the purpose of God's law, that person won't recognize the importance of what Christ did when he came under the law to free us from the penalty of the law. And so now, you and I, our hearts almost resonate with something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote. He was a dissident during the days of the Soviet Union where he wrote in ways in which people were longing for freedom from that communist tyranny over their lives. He was thrown into prison. But God was doing something in terms of grace in his heart during his days of imprisonment. In his book, The Gulag Archipelago, recounting that experience, he wrote, It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within me the first stirrings of grace. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but pierces the human heart and all human hearts. So, bless you, prison. Bless you for exposing my heart to me and having been in my life. Now what God does before you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ is that he allows the law to lock you up. 
restrict you. They hinder your movements. So that you and I become extremely conscious of the sinfulness of sin. So that it creates within the heart a longing for the power of sin to be broken. So that it creates within the heart a longing for the penalty of sin to be paid. The problem is, if we don't teach law, then people are going to be unaware of the longing that they ought to have within their hearts for this power to be broken and this penalty to be paid. If we go to the cross without first having established the value of the law, we end up with cheap grace and a false understanding of what true freedom is. So they just simply look for the God who will graciously redeem them from a tough marriage, redeem them from a tough job, redeem them from some tough health matters, without getting to the core issue of being redeemed from the penalty and the power of sin itself, which is the purpose of God's law prior to our salvation. Before this faith came, he said, we were were held prisoners. Sentry duty. Locked up. Until faith should be revealed. So now look at your heart and ask, if I experienced true liberation or have I not? It's the power and the penalty of the law as it relates to sin that is addressed by the one who was born under the law, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, therefore sets us free from the penalty of the law that's found here. There's something more. If we want authentic gospel, real Christianity, and not substitutes for, we understand that the law held us captive in verse 23. But furthermore, the law served as our guardian, verse 24. Look at this. So the law was put in charge. To lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Now let's start right there. Notice this word put in charge. Some of your translations might have the word guardian. I've put the Greek word up there intentionally. Pythagogos. Because this is one word that was used consistently throughout the Roman Empire in the time in which Paul wrote. Paul understood what it meant to be in prison. But furthermore, Paul, looking over the landscape, understood the role of the Pythagogos in that time period. And now he takes a political illustration, a cultural illustration, and relates it to what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. Let's not overlook what he's saying here at this point. But we've got to allow history to get practical for us. In the time period in which Paul wrote, it was the time period in which the Romans were in charge, so they thought of the political landscape around the world. Within the typical Roman upper echelon, there would be a slave 
typically a Greek slave, because the Romans valued Greek culture. They conquered the Greeks. And this slave was known as the Pythagogos. He had one primary responsibility as a respected, mature slave, political slave. He would be treated well for the most part in the Roman household. And it was to get the children, the sons in the Roman family, to school and back. He would carry a rod with him. They would be under his supervision as they would head to class and then return home. Now, Paul is intentionally using this word. And he's going to drive home the practical ramifications for you and for me as well. What he is saying simply is this. When you and I get serious about the gospel, serious, we have to expect the fact that God's moral law was there to drive us toward Christ, yet it will not save us from our sins. Rather, it reveals to us the sinfulness of the sin within our hearts. He's trying to be as relevant as he can be. And now what you and I do is we take that little history lesson that Paul, really the Holy Spirit delivered through Paul, and he's saying, now, check out your heart. Ask yourself, have you been freed? Have you been set free? Because what the law is meant to do, it's meant to hold us captive, so it creates a yearning, a longing in our hearts to be freed from the captivity of the power and the penalty of sin. Furthermore, it serves as your Pythagogos. It's pointing you toward Christ. But you're going to have to put your faith, and you're going to have to put your trust in Him and Him alone. Because you and I know that around the world, people long for freedom. And you and I know at a very personal level, we long to be free from something that just seems to be weighing down the heart at this very moment on this Sunday morning. I admire mailmen. I got this from years back, that a mailman got a new route and was trying to become familiar what to expect each day. On one porch was a mean-looking German shepherd. We got one. His name's Eli, only he's as docile as they come. But this one looked poised to leap at any moment. As the mailman slowly made his way toward the mailbox, the dog jumped eight feet into the air and then returned to the perch on the porch and sat down. The owner walked out the door to check on the commotion, and the mailman, who was catching his breath, asked in amazement to him, Why did he do that? And the owner replied, Oh, we took off his chain yesterday, but he doesn't realize he's free yet. Now there's the problem with a legalistic Christian. The chain's been removed. 
The power of sin's broken. The penalty of sin's paid. The law was such that you felt hemmed in and closed. A yearning in your heart for freedom. The Pythagoras has been pointing in the direction of Jesus. So now, Jesus steps in. You put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The chain's removed. The question is, do you recognize the freedom that you now have in Christ to live for Him? Or you find yourself just jumping up and down religiously without any forward movement spiritually? Where are you at? Have you found your freedom in Jesus yet? Do you recognize the beauty of the one who set the captive free? Before faith came, we were under God's law, 23 and 24. But here now is your second stage of salvation history. The number two, because faith came, We are in Christ Jesus. Look now at verse 25. Now that faith has come. Past tense. Contrast with what you saw at the beginning of verse 23. Before this faith came. Now that faith has come. Faith in that incarnate Christ Jesus. What does he say? We are no longer under the supervision of the law, under your pedagogos. You are not being held captive. So now you look at me and you say, well, Gary, then what am I? Because I'm living in a culture where everybody is struggling with their identity. And I face that, don't you? People are struggling with the question, Who am I? I mean, truly. Who am I? Now, you have an undisturbed faith if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Which means there ought to be such an inner tranquility in your relationship with God that transfers into even your relationship with yourself. Because you start with God. Now, once you begin to work that out, you are able then to begin to work through your identity. Look what he says now in verse verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith where? In Christ Jesus. I want to draw out three significant privileges that you and I experience if we are found in Christ Jesus. Notice the prepositions. We were under God's law before the faith. We are in Christ Jesus because of that faith. Now, look very carefully at what he said. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It does not say you are sons of God because of what you have achieved for Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't say that you are sons of God because of the works you have done for God. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This, again, was something that came to bear upon the heart of the individual in the time period in which Paul was writing. Through faith, you are now in Christ Jesus. What is faith? Do you remember that story of the great Blondin? He would startle the crowds with his death-defying stunts over Niagara Falls. He'd point to the tight rope suspended over one area of Niagara. And then he would taunt the crowds that had gathered by. He would say, question, Who believes that I can push this cot over the falls on this rope? Hands would shoot up. They've heard his story. And then he'd point his hand out, his finger at a particular individual, and then say, if you really believe, get in. With wheelbarrow ready to push that guy across the falls. Now, what God is saying here is that if you have really believed, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are therefore in Jesus Christ, And now there ought to be such a tranquil spirit because this faith is placed in the right object of faith, Jesus Christ and Christ himself. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now the ladies here are probably saying, well, why not daughters of God? Well, I get that too. But remember, I'm not particularly wild about being called the bride of Christ either. So bear with me here as we work through what he's saying. You are all sons of God. He is simply speaking legally at that time period in the Roman Empire where a particular son was privileged with the inheritance that came of growing into adult manhood. Came across this story. Waiting aboard a plane on which he had a reservation. Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, the third, not the second, third, overheard this from a private. I'm going overseas in three days. I want to see my parents before I go. This man was trying to get his reservation. He's waiting to board the plane. It was explained to him that every seat on the plane was taken. Just then, Brigadier General Roosevelt, Teddy's son, stepped forward and said, I'll surrender my seat to him. But, a fellow officer argued, it's a matter of rank. That's right, said General Roosevelt. He's a son. I'm only a general. There is something beautiful that comes when realizing that God is not only your creator. God is your father. And you belong to him. 
years and years ago when my children were young, I remember we were going to amusement park and I had some tickets to let them in and there was this little guy, somehow he made his way into the midst and there weren't three, there were four kids reaching out for the ticket. That little guy was not my son. I had three tickets and they went to my children. There is no such thing as universal fatherhood. God is the creator of all. But God is the father of the redeemed. Notice what it says here. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Not everyone is in Christ Jesus. And that is the spiritual position that God is speaking of that ought to give you such a sense of a tranquil peace and a bona fide faith that you're able to look at those who may want to disturb your faith. And you have such an inner sense of assurance about what Christ has done that in reality, that solidified faith is what disturbs a culture, a society, a nation, a world where you are focused upon the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ. We are sons of God. You see it there in verse 26 and 27. But here, here's the second distinctive. That in Christ, we are all one. We're all one. Look at verse... Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now notice that phrase, all one. It means that you are all one person in Christ Jesus. Do you realize what that does for a family? Do you realize what that does for a congregation? If they have found their oneness in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase, in Christ Jesus, again. It means that no matter what your differences might be with someone else, they are secondary to what's primary. You are in. You are one person, literally in the Greek. You are one person in Christ Jesus. What you share in common then is far more significant than the distinctives between you and that other individual, no matter what they might be. See what that does for you relationally, practically, the way we relate to one another? This would have been jaw-dropping now for those that were processing what, what Paul wrote at this point. He has been tracking Jewish history through the generations leading up to Jesus. And now here he is saying, neither Jew nor Gentile. There is oneness in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are distinctives. There is a land promised to the Jew, Messianic Jew. I'm not a Messianic Jew. We have them in all three services. There's something more materially for that individual. But we are one in Christ Jesus if we put our faith and trust in him. 
So he says now, very clearly, neither Jew nor Greek. And then he looks over the Roman culture and says, neither slave nor free. In other words, he moves from the racial into the cultural into, furthermore, the sexual, male nor female. Now, there are obvious distinctions between male and female. But he's saying, despite the distinctions, there is to be one personness in Christ Jesus. And when we as a congregation look at one another, and you know that that person comes from a different background, maybe different passions, different interests, but that person is saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, as are you. Despite the distinctives, the overwhelming oneness is found here. It is being in Christ and in Christ alone. Here now is one more privilege. In Christ, we are sons of God. In Christ, we are all one. Thirdly, in Christ, we are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs, you see, heirs according to to promise. Now, when you and I look at this, we can almost see how Paul then is staring down his opponents who are arguing, well, the Gentiles, if they're going to be part of us, they've got to be circumcised. We've got to add works to grace, creating almost this oxymoron of merited grace. And he's saying, uh-uh. Because way back in the promise which preceded Moses in the days of Abraham, God promised what seed? Now look very carefully. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And he, he chose a word that can mean either singular or plural, depending on the context. Just like my good buddy Hale last week, he and I were talking about this subject. And it's very similar to me standing out in a pasture with him, and, and he points out at the sheep. And I'm not sure at this point, does he mean a single sheep or a collective flock of sheep? Paul, by the Holy Spirit, chooses this word so that sometimes it means the singular, sometimes it means the plural, depending on the context. And God chose this purposefully. Because the nations of this world were to be blessed in man's seed. Do you remember the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, verse 15? Do you remember the seed of Shem, where we get Semites, in whose tents God would dwell in Genesis 9, 27? How about the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7? And how collectively that seed through the generations was, well, Satan attempted to stop that seed from continuing on. He used Pharaoh in Egypt. He used Herod regarding Bethlehem, trying to stop the movement of this seed where the seed was promised to crush the head of the serpent until we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. And now what God is saying through Paul is this. 
You know when God promised Abraham a seed and it would be a blessing to the nations? If you put your faith and trust, just as Abraham did in that promised seed, Christ Jesus, you're saved just like Abraham was, where he was declared righteous, and you become an heir. An heir according to what? The promise. And remember the promise, the great I wills of Genesis 12, preceded the thou shalt, thou shalt nots, delivered to Moses in Exodus. It's grace. Grace. Years ago I saw this in a Reader's Digest. That just before a man passed away, he wanted to make certain that his will was properly cared for. He also made certain that he was that there would be a provision for all his children to be able to take a Caribbean cruise together. After his death and things were being finalized, they were given tickets for the cruise. Well, on the second evening, a porter noticed that the family was alone in their cabin and the door was wide open. They were eating soup and crackers. Porter said, Hey folks, the buffet on the deck's open. It's delicious. They looked out and said, "But That's all right. We can't afford it. The porter laughed. He said, It's already been paid for. Came with a ticket. If you are in Christ, you're an heir. It's eternal life. And all the blessings that come with Jesus, paid for, paid for, comes with a ticket. I don't want to disturb your faith in Christ, says the man on that flight. The young university student responded, Sir, if you could disturb my faith in Christ, he wouldn't be a big enough savior for me. Question. Do you have an undisturbed faith? In Christ alone. Let's stand together. Father, we've tried to be true to your word. Just follow the natural flow and apply truth to life. I want to pray for that one who's in Christ, but boy, it just seems as though that person feels so disturbed. They're being honest. They've got an agitated heart. Remind him or her that there are privileges through the working of the Holy Spirit that comes with being in Christ Jesus. We've been set free. We're heirs. Minister to that heart.
and show them where true grace is found. It's in you and you alone. And if there's anyone in these services, Father, who is not in Christ but outside Christ, show them what true freedom means. What an incredible environment it is to be in Christ Jesus. May they put their faith in Jesus and him alone for salvation. We'll give you all the praise now. All of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.